0: If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to grab those. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 25 is where we'll find ourselves. And I don't know about you, but my heart is full this morning. Uh, I don't even need to preach. We need to go home. I'm just kidding. You know me. I'm kidding. <clears throat> Isaiah 25. Uh, it's been a fantastic morning to be gathered together um, as we continue on in our Advent series, we started last week considering this idea of, of preparation and what does that mean as we think about uh, the Advent time. And, and this is a time that if you follow the kind of the church calendar, that, that it's a time where we kind of reflect on a few things and we consider some topics. We talk about being prepared last week and this morning we're going to talk about the idea of hope. What is the hope that we can have this Advent season. And, uh, and we even said, you remember last week, that, that Advent we want to con- uh, consider is is both something that has already happened. There's already been one Advent. That's what we kind of think about and celebrate at Christmas, the, the baby Jesus coming down from heaven, right? That's, that's the Christmas story. That's his first Advent. But there is a second Advent to come. And, and, and as believers in 2021, we missed the first one Uh, because that was for a specific time and place and people, uh, but we hopefully will not miss the second one, that, that there is a coming day in which we will have a second advent, a second coming of our Lord and Savior, and we want to be ready for it. So last week we talked about being prepared. This week we're going to look at the idea of hope. So what is hope? How would you define hope? this morning. If you had to write a sentence uh, of definition, and, and don't cheat, don't look at Webster's Dictionary, but, but how would you, in your own personal life, how would you define hope? If you are hopeful for something, what do you think of? he really, hope is one of those words that that I think is almost a bit of a junk drawer word, similar to how we use love, right? We use the word love in all kinds of ways and expressions, and how we use it really determines what we actually mean when we say love. And I think hope can take on a very similar place and position because we might say things like, I hope my food order is correct, right? I hope my food order is correct. Or we might say, I hope that I'm not too late. If you're going somewhere. Or we might say, I hope that person, maybe not now, but in high school, right? I hope that person invites me to the dance. And we might even weaponize hope and say, I hope that person doesn't invite me to the dance, right? But, but we say that, that we hope that happens. Or we might say that I hope I remember to bring that. If you need to bring something, you're leaving somewhere and you hope you remember to bring some, something or it might take on a little more of a serious tone. I hope I can pass this test. If you're a student or, or you, you have uh, uh, some sort of career advancing something, right? I hope I can pass this test. Um, I hope my spouse will be home soon. I hope my spouse will be home soon. It's the holidays, right? Maybe we might say, I hope I get to see my family this Christmas. And maybe it might even take on a little more of a serious tone, and we might we might be at the doctor's, and, and we're about to hear some news, and we say that I hope the test results come back okay. See, in all of those examples, all of those instances, we're saying the same thing, I hope. But at what level of of seriousness are we placing on the word? Hopefully we don't have the same investment in I hope my food order is correct as we do as I hope that this doctor's test is okay. But see, we use that same word of hope. And what does hope mean? How would we define it? And all of those statements were seeking something. And, and, and what we're seeking is a desire that, that a certain thing would happen that we would render as both good and right. In fact, I, I did cheat. I looked at Webster's Dictionary, and, and hope is defined this way. It's, it's actually two different parts of speech. As a noun, hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That's probably true, right? That we have this feeling, this desire, this expectation that there is something we would like to see happen. But as a verb, it's actually more of an action. It's, it's a state of mind that we want something to happen or we want it to be the case. It's when you are hoping in something. You want something to become true. You want it to be the case. And so placing our hope in something comes though with the possibility that it may not come to pass. Have you ever thought about that? That if you are placing your hope in something, if you're hoping for something to be true, it may not actually come to pass. And the reality is, is we control very little of what happens in this world. We can hope all that we want, but but it just may not come true. It's out of our control. And so although we have this action in our lives that we're Hoping for something, it may not be the case. I'll give you an example. It's Christmas time, right? And maybe it's true of your life that you want something specific. You've asked for it. You've dropped hints all over the place that this is what you want. You're hoping for it. You're expecting it. You're excited for it. And Christmas comes, and you open all your gifts, and you don't get it. Does that ever happen to anyone? Come on, shame the devil, tell the truth. Yeah, it's happened to all of us. We hope for something. We anticipate something. We desire something to be the case, to be true, and it doesn't happen. We didn't get what we hoped for because it's out of our control. Ultimately, all we can do is hope in something, but it's out of our control. I wrote a definition of hope if you wanted to uh, to write this. Hope is emotional optimism that seeks positive results in various conditions and circumstances of life. Hope is emotional optimism that seeks positive results in various conditions and circumstances of life life. Let me give you another example of how we sometimes hope and and, and lose hope because of something out of our control. You, maybe you've heard this phrase that, that people have lost their hope in humanity. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Have you ever used that phrase before? And if you look around our world, it's easy to see why someone might say that, that they've lost their hope in humanity. Well, what do they mean by that? What are they saying when they use that Phrase that they're saying that there was an expectation or a desire that they had for something to be true about humanity, and that desire did not come to pass. That desire proved untrue, right? And so they have uh, they have a hope, but that hope doesn't happen. And it is true that when our hopes are not fulfilled, that emotional optimism changes right like when our hopes don't happen when we're let down when our hopes are squashed right that that optimism that 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 anticipation that desire then goes away and so sometimes we might even preface telling someone well don't get your hopes up Ever used that phrase before? Don't get your hopes up. Well, what do we mean by that? We we mean that the reality is, the likelihood is is that whatever circumstance or thing that you are committing your hope in, that you are desiring to come to pass, whatever you're expecting, it it may not happen. Like the 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 outlook isn't good, and so we don't want to get our hopes up. And the more our hopes get trampled on, the less and less and less we hope. You know this to be true, right? You, you become a little bit jaded. You become a little bit skeptic of things. And this really leads us to the opposite of hope. What is the opposite of hope? It's despair. It's despair. It's, it's a complete absence of hope. There's a Danish theologian who's name is Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard. Maybe you've heard of him. I know some of you do some light reading uh, of his. Uh, But but Soren Kierkegaard uh, is really one of the first existential philosophers. Existential philosophers. One of the guys that, uh, that thinks just so out there about life and the meaning of life and the significance of life. And he writes this. I find this really interesting. He writes... That despair involves the loss of meaning for the self. That despair is not just a loss of hope, it is is an unwillingness to hope. See, for Kierkegaard, he believed that at the core of every human being is a spirit. And we'll interchange that, we'll call that a soul. And the soul or the spirit is most fundamentally who we are. It is most fundamentally who we are. It's, it's the intersection of our hearts and our minds that are intertwined uh, where our thinking and our emotions, where they come from, all of those things shape our spirit and who we are. It's where our personality comes from. It's the birthplace of us. And so to have hope there, to have A hope in that setting, in that space, right? That is a budding sense of self. But to not have hope, to have despair, is a complete removal of the sense of self and a denial of it. That's what Soren Kierkegaard would conclude. And so, as he would say, that despair isn't just a feeling of hopelessness. Like, it's, it's not just the ship is lost and abandoned ship. And that's how we would think of despair sometimes, right? That, that, well, it's hopeless, we'll just forget it and move on. No, despair actually has a much deeper and more significant meaning than that. Despair is an unwillingness to hope. Like, we're not even going to try anymore. That's despair. We're empty, and sometimes despair is coupled with things like sadness and brokenness and grief, and, and this—all these things will sometimes lead to uh, people uh, going down dark paths in life, going down dark places in the mind and in the heart, and, and could potentially even lead a person to end life. Itself, because the despair and the grief and the the uh, sorrow has just overcome who they are. It's a it's an unwillingness to hope, and so you ask, maybe, well, how does this relate to Advent and the Bible and what we're talking about and thinking about in this time? Well, I'll tell you, Because in the, in Hebrew language there are several words that are used. To convey the idea of hope. But as you read through, especially the Old Testament, there are two that are the most common used through the Old Testament. One is the word tikva, it's the word tikva. And the other is the word quava. Tikva and quava are the two most used Hebrew words when it relates to hope in the Bible. So if you're reading through the Old Testament and you see the word hope, it's probably one of these two words are a variation of it but tikva if you if you look at the the original language the hebrew language and you translate the word tikva tikva is translated as cord or rope cord or rope it's its idea is that you're binding something when the the word tikva is used it's to be understood that there is a a binding of things like Placing your hope in something, placing tikvah in something, means to bind or tie to that thing. It means to tie to that thing, just like you would use a piece of rope to tie something together. That's what we understand with tikvah, and the Bible uses it for hope. But another definition of tikvah that that is similar is that it is also the word trust. That we're binding to something, we're, we're tikva. We're binding to it, and we're trusting it. We're lashing it together tightly with the rope, and we're trusting in that action. Hopefully, if you're going to tie to something, if you're going to bind yourself to something, you are going to trust some that thing first before you bind yourself to it. Right? That's tikva. The other word, quava, is translated simply as waiting. Or waiting for. It's how the Old Testament helps us understand this idea of hope that we are binding, we are trusting, and we are waiting. So in the Bible, when you see the word hope, that's what it means one of those three things binding, trusting, or waiting. That's a very different set of definitions than emotional optimism that seeks a positive result in various conditions of life. Would you agree? Like we're to be binding or trusting or waiting on something when we think of hope. Here's what I want us to consider this morning. That there is a hope that we have in this Advent season and every other day as well, truthfully. And that hope doesn't come from what might happen. It doesn't come from what we want to happen. It's not a hope of our will or our desire or our present circumstance. Rather, it's a hope that was in fact first instituted by God himself and as believers and followers of him, we have the grace to experience this hope in our own lives. That this hope, which is the best kind of hope, comes from a promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. You remember the story, Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. It's the institution of sin within the world. There is a fracturing of the world. Relationship with God is now broken. There are consequences that come as a result of that relationship. And in Genesis 3.15, God makes this promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So there is someone to come, someone born of the woman, whether it be immediately or somewhere down the line, but someone is coming and look what he says. He says, he, this person, this offspring shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, now, God is making that proclamation to the serpent who we know to be satan the tempter right the one who caused all of this mess god promises him that there is a savior coming and and we read that as a hope for all of mankind that one day there will be a reconciliation and we can believe in that we can bind ourselves to that we can trust that and we need to wait on that it's the very first promise of a Savior from mankind. And for all of the Old Testament, they're waiting for this person. They're waiting for this guy, this Savior, this promised Messiah. And in Isaiah 9, we actually get a picture of what that Savior would look like. You know this as a, a very Christmassy type passage, but it says this in Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness... Have seen a great light; those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation; you have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when the divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor, you have broken on the day as uh, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here's what we know for Christmas. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the offspring of the woman. This is the Savior, the one who is to come. This is the hope that God ordains way back in Genesis 3. It's Jesus Christ whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time. It's the Jesus whom the Bible says is the the very love of God in human flesh that came down and dwelt among us. It's the same Jesus who lived a perfect and sinless life. He did absolutely nothing wrong according to God's standard, which, by the way, is the only standard that actually matters in this world But Jesus did absolutely nothing wrong. And the Bible says he died on the cross for the sins of all mankind. And after three days spending time in death's grave, God raised him back to life, forever defeating sin and death and securing our eternity and salvation in heaven with God the Father. And if we will just repent of our sins and believe in the awesome work of Jesus, The Bible tells us that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and if we will give our lives to making Jesus the Lord and Savior of our life and our master, that we will spend eternity with him in heaven, praising God, declaring his glory and his holiness, because we were once lost, but he has found us. That's something to hope in, is it not? But what do we mean by hope? Is that something that we are desiring or expecting? No, because it's already happened. Like that's that's the beauty of the hope that we have at Christmas. It's not a hope of desiring something to be because it's already become. It's already done. Jesus has already accomplished it. God has already done this amazing thing. And so this is what we're to consider at Advent season, at Christmas season. First, that that He did come. We remember and celebrate that He did come and we anticipate His second coming. We have this, this tikvah, right? This binding together, this, this lashing together of our faith to this truth. We bind it forever in our hearts and we trust in God's work. And his word, while we also quava, right? That we wait for him to do what it is his will to do. Binding and trusting and waiting. That is the hope that we have at Christmas. That is the hope that we have in this Advent season. Not a hope of desiring something to be. The only thing we need to desire has already become already been done that's my introduction now to our passage this morning let me encourage you this morning a hope for advent of binding and trusting and waiting these things are already true there's no need to desire them or hope that it will happen it has already happened the salvation has come and is for everyone. We simply need to bind ourselves to it. We simply need to tie ourselves to it. We need to let it be at the center of our lives, by which we then align ourselves and our life with it, and then we wait for His second coming. So Isaiah 25, let's read this together. I'll read, you follow along, Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud so the song of the ruthless is put down on this mountain. The Lord of hosts will make for all his people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us and that you have spoken to us a hope. And, and God, a greater hope than just the, the desire or expectation of something. You have spoken something to us that is true and is good and is right. And you have told us to bind ourselves to it. That the hope that we can have is not a hope of just just optimism or, or emotion, but a hope of of assuredness and an absolute truth. God, I pray this morning that we would see as we we look at this passage very quickly, God, that we would see the truth that is here, that there there is something you are doing amongst your people that we can be hopeful in. God, we love you. I pray now that you would use me, that you would Be with me as I uh, preach your word. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A couple of things very quickly to point out as we work through this text. The first thing that we want to just make note of is this, that there is a declaration of who God is to the individual. There's a declaration of who God is to the individual that is writing this. Look there in verse 1. He says, O Lord, you are my God. He says, O Lord, you are my God. God he's calling the Lord by name it's the it's the name Yahweh it's a an old Hebrew name but it's the name of Yahweh he says Yahweh you are my God it's reminiscent of Deuteronomy 6 which we would know as the Shema what what Jesus or what God commands his people to say that that the Lord our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. We love the Lord. We worship Him. We follow Him. We submit to Him. These are the the things that this person is saying that you are my God. See, there is, and there will never be anything. There will never be anything like our God. There will be never. There will never be any one like our God, that everything in life that is not God Almighty, is not Yahweh, is a false God that will lead people to despair and not to hope. Yahweh is the only living and true God. This is shown over and over and over again in scripture. Just go read the story of Elijah at at Mount Carmel where people had had a hope in a false God, and that God proved to be a dead God that is incapable of any sort of action. And God rains down fire on the entire scene. He is a living and true God. That's why the command to not have any idols in our life is so offensive to God. Because when we, when we have an idol in our life, we are saying that God is, is, is subservient. He is secondary to this one thing. And sometimes idols in our lives can be good things by the world's standard. We might place our children or our spouses or our families or our jobs or or a security in life. Those are all okay things, but anything that takes a primary seat and got a secondary seat is an idol in our life. And it fills us with nothing but despair. If there is anything that would rob us of our affections and our attention and our desire for the things of God, it is an idol. The world tries desperately today to get us to put our hope in all kinds of things. Right? We know this to be true. The world tries us to To get us to put our hope in things like money, or relationships, or comfort, and stuff. Really, in 2021, it seems like the biggest pull for our hope is the realization of the true self, and the identity that exists within all of us that we think we possess. And so, if you feel that something is right and is true, well, then... Who is anyone else to argue? Because it's how you feel. It's what you know to be your truth. And if they don't align with you, if they don't agree with you, well, then they're just bigoted or misguided. They're maybe even misogynistic or racist. Right? There's this this desire, this this beckoning to the true self today. To have an identity. About yourself, but I wonder what identity are we supposed to put our hope in? Like if that's true, if we're to have an identity, what identity do we put our hope in? What identity do we tie the ropes of our faith and our trust in? Because see, we have a lot of identities in life that we assume and we take on, but a lot of times those identities change. Every day those identities change. And if there's this, this revolving door of identity, at what point do we, do we put our trust in it? And the world says that the God we should worship is the God of happiness and of freedom, of self-identity, but it's a false God. And you can be rest assured that it will not give you hope. We exalt, like this writer does, the one and true God. It is him alone that we love. Look at the second thing. We look at his wonderfulness. His wonderfulness. We, we say, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. I will do these things. Why? For you have done wonderful things. You remember what Isaiah 9 calls the savior of the world, the savior to come, which is actually God in the flesh, He says that he is the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor, and it can be assumed that a wonderful counselor is going to do wonderful things, right? If you're going to take on the name of wonderful counselor, then the things that follow must be wonderful. It's his name. It's who he is. And it's exactly what God does for those who follow him. Wonderful things. In Psalm 126, there's a passage where the Lord restores His people and their response is to tell the world that He has done great things for them. That He's done great things for us. He's done wonderful things for us in the restoration that He has brought about in our lives. It's Psalm 126. And and look at the disposition of their life. Look at the, the current state of their lives. There's laughter and joy and gladness. So you can't experience those things truly unless you have the hope of your life fixed in the right place. You can only experience those things when your life and your heart is set on the hope of the Lord, trusting him, binding yourself to it, and waiting on him. And what I don't mean by God is going to do wonderful things in your life. I don't mean that he is going to make you wealthy. I don't mean that he's going to make everything easy and you're going to have a good and perfect life. I don't mean that he's going to make you successful. I don't mean that he's going to make you popular. I don't mean that he's going to give you some sort of special status or authority. What I mean is God doing wonderful things in your life actually has nothing to do with any of that but do you know what wonderful things he will do in ephesians 3 it says that he's going to bless us beyond anything that our little minds can fathom or dream up and i don't know about you but i can dream up some really cool stuff god promises us that he's going to bless us beyond anything he's going to do wonderful things beyond anything that we can ever possibly imagine and so maybe you're thinking i think this maybe you're thinking that millions of dollars sounds like a pretty good blessing and it does i wouldn't mind if somebody gave me a big old fat check with a few commas in it but but maybe the wonderful thing that god's going to do is give you something better than that. You say, what's better than a million dollars? Maybe it's going, maybe it's learning how to live with contentment. Maybe it's learning how to be generous with your life where, where you're not just desiring to have money yourself, but you're actually giving away your money. You're, you're lessening yourself so that you can bless others with generosity with through finances and through money. You want to bless others with your wealth? That's a wonderful thing that God will do in a person's life. Learning to be content, not envious. Learning to want to give and not covet. That's something God does in our lives. Or maybe you you would say that I would love some status or authority. That would be nice. That would be a great blessing, right? To, to be someone in charge and to have some some stature about us, someone of importance, but perhaps God is going to show you that humbly submitting to others and serving others and putting others first is a, is actually a more fulfilling life to live. That's a wonderful thing that God does in our lives. And so often there's a, a bigger blessing to serving than receiving. See, what God does, the wonderful things he does in our lives is he takes what we think is true and he flips them on their head. It's called sanctification. We grow as followers of him. And the most wonderful thing that he has done is he has saved us and redeemed us from our sin. The Bible tells us we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are in fact children with all of the benefits and the blessings that that comes with of God. And and, and here's the neat part. Look again at Isaiah 25. It says, You've done these wonderful things, plans formed of old. This was his plan from the beginning. Like this was his plan from the beginning. It's not a plan B. It's not a last minute attempt. He didn't forget and try to just kind of throw something together. It's not a Hail Mary pass with his fingers crossed that it works. Like this was God's plan from the beginning. The the word here in Hebrew for the word sure. He says that it is formed of all the faithful and sure. That word sure in Hebrew, is actually the word amen. And that's not just a hillbilly saying amen. But it is the word amen. In Greek, it's translated as amen. What does amen mean? Amen is something that is verified and confirmed. It is true with absolution. There is no question as to its authenticity. And so when God says that he has done wonderful things, and that these plans are plans of old. They are faithful. Amen. Long ago, God wanted to give us a lasting hope, one that is true and sure, and one that you can bet your life on. Because he himself has brought it about, and he has verified it, and he has stamped it as true and absolute. And so we can hope in that. We can bind ourselves to that. We can trust in that. Jump down. Verse 7. Verse 7 and 8. And he, swall- and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death Forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Probably one of the best group of sentences ever written in the entire Bible. He will swallow up death forever. If that doesn't excite you, then I don't know what will. But there is a death of death that is coming. There is a death of sin that is coming. Paul echoes this very same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable. That sounds a lot like being tied to something, right? Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, believing, trusting, hoping that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. See the veil that covers the people in this Isaiah passage is sin. And here God says that he has done away with it. Like it is gone forever as if it never existed, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Because when Jesus died on the cross, God poured out his wrath for all of mankind's sin in that moment. And when Jesus says it is finished, he means that the payment for sin has been settled. And so although we do sin sometimes in our lives, we no longer have to feel guilt or shame or or regret for those sins. Because God, if we are trusting in him, we've given our lives to him, he does not see us that way anymore. He sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It says that he has swallowed up death. Death is no more. The fear of death, the consequence of sin that we find in Romans 6, for the believer, that death is a non-issue. Because Jesus has settled it for us all by God's design long ago. The payment of sin is death. But God has swallowed that up for the believer. And this life is hard. Make no mistake. There are times where it will be difficult and it will seem like it is too much to endure and to keep going. But look at the promise that follows He says that he will wipe away the tears from all faces. We have to simply keep going because there is something coming in the second advent where God will meet us and he will relieve us of the burden of the sin of the world. He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. We will be with him for eternity. The last thing I want us to see in this Passage quickly is this the object of our hope. For understand that hope is a binding and a trusting and a waiting. And that's what we are to think about in this season. We'll look here at the object of our hope. Verse 9. It will be said on that day: Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. That he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the Lord we have waited. We have hoped. We have tied our lives to him. We have bound ourselves. Jesus would use the word abide. We have tied ourselves to him tightly the rope has not been severed it's been it's a it's a it's a boy scout knot you can't get those things undone right we have bound ourselves to him we've trusted in him and in his word and we've seen the wonderful things that he has done in our lives and we have waited until it came to pass and in that day we will rejoice We will be glad. Sounds a lot like Psalm 126 where there is laughter and gladness and joy. This is the object of our hope. It's not just a hope of expectation because of our desires. It's a hope of concrete confidence. This has already happened. We simply need to believe it and put our give our trust to it. One more passage before we close. I, I want to encourage you this morning in this. First Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, listen to this, to be born again to a living hope. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Though you may not have seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, church, this is what I want us to see and know this morning. That we can be filled with hope in this Advent season, but not a worldly hope of wanting something to be true because that is just emotional optimism. We have a hope that is confident And a blessed assurance that God has saved us from our sins. And one day we will get to spend eternity with him. The baby Jesus is just the the kickstart of God's plan. So although we celebrate his coming, we don't just dwell there. We take in the whole picture. There is a hope at Advent season And it is this hope that God has saved us and he has swallowed up death. So be filled with hope this morning. Bind yourself to Jesus. Bind yourself, tie yourself to his word with tight knots that cannot come undone. Trust in his word as we wait for him to come. Let me just say this before I'm done because perhaps this morning you actually find yourself in despair. Perhaps this morning you're hearing all of this and you say, yeah, that all sounds really good, but, but I, actually I'm in a state of despair. I can't hope anymore. I've, I've seen too much. I've experienced too much. I want to extend to you the invitation to hope again. Because perhaps you've been hoping in the wrong things. Perhaps God, Yahweh, has not been the God that you have put your hope in. You've hoped in other things. David in Psalm 42 uh, experienced this. It was a deep time of agony and distress, In his life, and he even says, Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Like David recognizes the despair that is creeping into his life, and he follows up with that and he says, Hope in God, trust in God, bind soul yourself to God again, because he is the only thing that can rid us of this despair we find in our lives. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're you're one more let down away from total loss and hopelessness. Friend, hope in God. Call out to him. Let him save you as he has said he will do that you might find joy and gladness and hope. Again, let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the hope that we have this Advent, this Christmas season. It's not a hope of of just wanting something to be true. God, it is already true because you have made it so. You've seen to it that it is true. God, I pray that you would just be with us. As we move through this month and we consider all of these things and we, we think about the way that life is going in, in this present moment, and God, give us hope. Let us bind ourselves to the truth of your word that you have saved us. We need not live in despair and, and brokenness and an unwillingness to hope. We have great hope and confidence in you that it is done. It is for Finished, Father. We love you. We thank you for bringing us together this morning. I pray that you have been glorified through song and through the preaching of your word, through the the Lord's Supper, all of the things we've done this morning. It has been done in your name, and we lift you up high. And God, even as we end and we sing one last time, may you be glorified in our singing and in our going. As we praise your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand?